Um, okay, so welcome to the Night Hurts podcast. Um, we've got a special guest in today. I've not told anyone that you're going to be on, so this is going to be a surprise for anyone who tunes in. Okay. Um, so Steve Hawkins is a very Im- important person, I guess, in, in Lincoln's not, music Not history. that one. Not that one. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> not the one in... In space, or this, this the one. This is the one sans chair. This is this is a, <laughs> a very famous sound guy. So, Steve Hawkins, who Hello. ran the Bivouac um, music venue, I guess. I mean, yep. it's hard to explain really, but the Duke of Wellington in Lincoln is is incredibly important to a lot of people um, in this city and and beyond, um, and people who are very famous now. Um, so, I thought I'd get you on just to chat because I used to put on gigs way you back. You did. Um, you introduced uh, me to bands I'd never heard of, and I was go. grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some some better than others, I, I imagine. But um, of course, of course, but that yeah. goes with the part of the course. Yeah, I kept putting on bands that you didn't like, so that was that was. Yeah, cool. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked you and your band, and I liked the bands you were in. You, you did scare me to death with your first band because I thought you were a Christian rock band. I remember this, yeah. So we, for, I was for, terrified. For those unaware, I was in a band called Throne when I was about 17, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I asked, I think I approached you in the Wagon and Horses in Sleaford for some reason and said, oh, yes. can I put a gig on, please? And you went, yeah, just give me a ring. And that was that, really. It was. Um, and you said, you're, you're, my band is called Throne. And I went away thinking, I like you. You're a nice guy. But you're possibly a Christian rock band, and that's really not what I want to encourage. So I was really delighted that when you did turn up, you weren't. It was nothing like that. Yeah, nothing like that. <laughs> but all sorts of heavy bands to to the bivouac. So, um, I guess if we go back to the start, I mean, I, I'm not aware of how long you were doing it before I sort of got involved. So I don't know if you want to sort of explain well, how you got not... involved in the first place. Uh, I moved to Lincoln in 96 um, and I was touring, uh, well, the world uh, with various bands, many American bands, some British bands, but mainly American bands as a sound engineer and tour manager and occasional manager of various bands. And I moved to Lincoln for reasons. Basically, I found a house I liked. I bought it. It was um, the smallest place I've ever lived in terms of um, city scape. Yeah. And I realized uh, very quickly when I wasn't on tour, when I was back, that Lincoln was very quiet and dead. And nothing really happened. And I, I bumped into, in a local pub, three local bands, Age Baby, Olivia Honey, I think one of them was, and um, The Models. It was something and The Models. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a nice man. Um, and I got talking to them and I said, you know, where do you play? And they said, there's nowhere to play. Uh, we're going to ha- have a meeting. This was in, um, what was this, 99, I think. We're going to have a meeting and ask local people to come and say uh, what they need. What uh, they need is musicians. And I, straight away I thought, a venue. But I went to the meeting that they, they arranged, and it was upstairs in this pub, the Duke of Wellington. And it was just a big empty room with a small, tiny, small stage at one end. Uh, and there was a good 160 people around that, maybe 90 to 160 people. All local people turned up, singer-songwriters, that kind of thing. And they all said the same thing. Uh, either they're very nervous and they've never played in front of anybody else, or we need a venue because we're sick of playing 
the same pub that has no stage and no PA and nothing. So I said, I introduced myself and I said, um, okay, fine. This is, I understand this. Uh, this is my world. Why don't we do it here? Very, very um, Mickey Rooney. Is it Mickey Rooney? Yeah, let's do the show here type thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I saw, I remember, I actually remember doing this. I leapt, I jumped up, got all excited, a bit like I am now. And I ran down the end of the room and jumped on the stage and did the Mickey Rooney thing and you know, put my hands out and everybody just stared at me as if I was a <laughs> lunatic, which is fine. And I said, look, I've got, I can get hold of a PA and get some lights. Let's talk to the owner of the pub, you know, the guy that ran it. Um, let's do it. Let's make it something happen. And they all said, no, basically. <laughs> right. So I, okay. I went downstairs and, and I said, okay, would you let me do regular meetings upstairs? We'll have regular meetings, first of all. Not a venue, but regular meetings. So uh, I can't remember his name, something in the models. Anyway, he was a really nice bloke, and he understood. So we did once a month, I think it was the first something of the month, uh, for the next six months, we met to discuss how we were going to do this. And the group got smaller and smaller and smaller, as you can imagine, as people sort of bottled. Sure. Um, and so I put together a bunch of speakers and stuff and I built a little PA and uh, I hope I don't, you don't mind me going on like this, but that's no, fine. It's fascinating. I, I basically um, found, I'd found another band, a band from Sleaford uh, who uh, were called something street. I have a terrible memory. Um, oh, uh, was it East road? Yes. Yeah. I know. That I know one well. of the lads in that. Yeah. There was five of them, and they played this pub around the corner. It was, you know, a little vocal PA they brought. And I thought, well, you got something. You're fine. So I said, introduced myself, and I said, you know, do you want to work with me? We can see what we can do. And they said yes. So uh, they came to the meeting as well, a couple of the meetings, and I said, look, why don't we put a little PA in, and we'll do a little experiment. Some of you say that you're very nervous, and you don't want to play in front of people, but you really do, and Let's get over this. Not to have anything fancy. Just put up a, you know, a little PA. And I gave them 12 minutes. I, I asked four different um, groups of people. You've got 12 minutes to play and then a little light will come on and you've got to stop. And that's the first bivouac night. It was wow. unofficially the bivouac. It was, it was, uh, it was, I think it was May. And the first bivouac night proper was on my 40th birthday uh, in okay. June. And I booked three bands that I liked to play my birthday as the first bivouac night. And I put a PA together. And I put the netting up for the first time and I put fairy lights in between the netting. So they twinkled. So it was like sky at night type thing with trees type thing. I have a stupid imagination. <laughs> and I booked a rockabilly band, the blue. Oh, the blue. I do this a lot. They were really good. They were a, a um, four piece. And they were fabulous, double bass, you know, drummer who played drums and sometimes got up, walked around the pub while he was playing snare. And they were brilliant. And they did covers, which was a bit naughty of me, uh, and a couple of their own songs as well, which was fine. And they were, they rocked the place. They were fantastic. So they headlined. There was about 92 people. This is the first bivouac night. And that established it. Yeah. But this 12-minute thing was really fun. I, this band from Sleaford, I got them to change their name. Uh, this was Lincoln Brown. This turned into Lincoln Brown. And I said, right, I'm going to do this in alphabetical order. And because you're not going to be first, 
I'm going to swap your name so it's Brown Lincoln, so you're first. Cahoots, which were a folk duo, they were second. And they were two local Lincoln bands. And I practiced with Lincoln Brown or Brown Lincoln so that they would do four songs without a break except to say hello at the end of the third one. It was really choreographed. I'd choreographed this. And they were going on first to set the tone to make everybody feel, wow, what's this? And maybe that would give them confidence. I don't think it worked particularly well. I think it might have frightened people, but I, I was too enthusiastic. <laughs> I was well enthusiastic. So I think they, the four songs, the original songs they did, came to 11 minutes and 35 seconds because we timed it. Um, and it was great. People, they went on first. The red light came on after they'd left the stage and people were amazed. The folk duo, who were proper little folk duo, it's really nice, um, they could do the business as well, and they they were really good. And then the third one spent nine minutes tuning, uh, and then ran out of time. And the last one were just petrified. But I was, you know, I was enthusiastic, as you can tell. Um, and I booked them all again <laughs> when we opened proper. So the idea was with the bivouac. The idea was fundamentally it had to work on many many levels. It had to be a venue that was open to any type of music and i would pick bands when i was doing if you weren't it wasn't your night for example it was my own which most of them were mine i'd mix up the band so that it wasn't genre based yeah um i wanted people to experience everything there were no rules apart from no banners uh, and no covers you could do anything you like uh and you had to work in this format so it was three or four bands the changeovers were as fast as possible, so 10, 15 minutes, you know, real fast changeovers. You had to use your own gear unless you'd organize something in advance with people. You couldn't turn up with any you no know, gear and expect to use anything. I didn't like that. Um, you had to – I wanted people to sort of believe in themselves and believe in the format. Um, because I worked with bands from CBGBs, I'd lived in New York, I was very heavily influenced by – the format of Hilly at CBGB's and there, you know, everybody used their own kit. There was a shelf at the back of CBGB's, a low shelf that went above the so-called dressing rooms, which were just rooms without doors. <laughs> and it was kit after kit after kit after kit. The last kit was the, after the headline band, because the second to last was drum kit was the headline band. Um, and each one, they moved off the shelf and mic'd up quickly and, and it was a great format, CBs, and it worked. And that's what I tried to do the bivouac. Bivouac is essentially Lincoln's Wembley Arena and CBGB's mixed up. So that all the bands, well, all the bands, basically it was, you, you couldn't, I wouldn't let, the point of the red light, which we only used that once, I wanted to establish the concept of, you've got half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour, then it's 10, 15 minutes changeover, then the next band, changeover, Next band, headline band. Yeah, the other important thing was, absolutely, and people rose to it. They rose to it. They got it, uh, um, uh, which was very exciting. And the other thing about the Bivouac, it had to be a way for the world to come to Lincoln and Lincoln to share a stage with the rest of the world, which sounds very grand, but it's it's basically you sign, you, you book, sorry, you don't sign, you book touring bands that already got 
sign deals with labels who are already traveling the world. And you make sure by hook or by crook that you can do something for that band when they come to Lincoln. So you can get them the headline slot. You give them a rider. You give them a four to five monitor mix. You give them, you know, a proper PA. It was a pile of junk and it was all put together in a really uh, ad hoc way. It was unorthodox, the PA, but it worked. And it was like two different types of pairs of bass bins and mid-range and various horns. Um, nothing was, um, it wasn't a set piece. It wasn't pretty like CBGB's. CBGB's PA is a mishmash like all American PAs of the 80s and 90s when I toured over there and lived over there. It was all a... Um, you know, a, a, an unpretty mishmash of mixed cabinets, uh, mixing desks in America that didn't work. Mine did. Um, <laughs> sometimes, actually, with your one of your bands, uh, Mark was uh, Mark was the bass player, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I liked him. I think I frightened him, but I liked him. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember him playing, and his monitor started to smoke. I don't know if you remember that. No, it started. It started. It basically started to go on fire, and that's fine. You know, we put it out, and uh, we carried on <laughs> because of the reason I learned that he wanted too much bass in the monitor, so of course it overheated and and right. I mean, those I, sort of things happened all the time. <laughs> I mean, what I what I remember from the bivouac and and what drew me to it, I think, was the fact that you were trying something completely new in a town that just wasn't prepared for it in a way absolutely um, this town had never known anything like it um to me it was it was what my bread and butter because i'd been very very lucky i'd started as a promoter in leeds i put on leeds bands and then i started to book american bands guitar bands ones i liked i was very very lucky i i was embraced by blast first records because the first people i rang up uh, was uh, Paul Smith, who ran Blast First Records, and I said, I want to book Big Black. And he said, you can't. They're doing their farewell world tour, they're playing Manchester, and then they fly to, I think it was New Zealand, Australia. Uh, they've only got the Sunday uh, before they fly. And I said, I'll book the Sunday. Just what do you want? I booked Leeds Polytechnic, as it was then. Um, I got the best PA in the region, and Paul loved it. Paul came up with the band Big Black Steve. I liked it. It was a great show. I didn't lose any money. It was a blinding success. And I did the Butthole Surfers a week later in Leeds. And over the next two or three years, I did Pussy Galore, Peru Boo, uh, Swans. I put on all those American bands. And I did that uh, because I am passionate, as you can tell. But I learned something. I learned something. If you treat the visiting bands you're, as a promoter well, you make sure when they arrive there's tea and coffee, there's, as I did at the Bivouac, four different meats, four different cheeses, bread, salad, uh, water, beer, juice. You know, if you treat people with respect, they go out on stage and at the Bivouac in Lincoln's tiny little stage, um, where the audience is right up against the uh, stage, they are happy and they go out and they treat the audience to a great show. And this is the exciting bit. The local bands that support get to see a band that's two or three stages above them 
doing a great show and they've played with them they've talked with them it's all open it's all mingled in that's it and i think that's why the bivouac has such a legacy and why people still talk about playing there now because they got the chance to play with unusual bands they got the chance to play with bands that are now stadium fillers you know like if yeah. we just like we could just list a few bands i mean killers we, yeah, killers <laughs> the killers are the big one aren't they They're, that's the obvious one isn't it like um, um uh bowls played to i looked it up yeah. the other day uh, and they played to 23 it? people <laughs> kaiser chiefs yeah. who uh uh they weren't called kaiser chiefs they played as parva and it was their last show as parva before they changed the name to kaiser chiefs i went to the hotel after they played and uh, the drummer and i sat up until five in the morning i have to say we got very drunk um <laughs> and we talked and talked and talked and talked and uh, uh i've got a really good story about that which i really shouldn't tell you but uh, maybe i will I, 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 <laughs> uh, and uh, uh they you could tell when they played they played to six people they played to six people because everybody had left um and they were brilliant they were basically the kaiser chiefs without being called the Kaiser Chiefs. Um, but there were, and there was something about them, I'm rambling here, but there was something about them. You just knew they were going to do well. You know, you didn't know when, but you knew they were going to do well. Um, Foles, um, you could tell they were good, but the singer was a difficult person, very difficult person. Yeah. No comply. They were doing really well at the time. They, they. Um, I don't know what's happened to them, but probably give it up. Um, we had, uh, who else? Oh, British Sea Power, uh, of yeah. course. Who did very very well? Um, there were loads of um, some American bands. The one I remember oh, was Biffy Clyro. Uh, Biffy Clyro. Biffy Clyro. Yeah. They 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 were freaked out by the dressing room. I don't know if you were, you went into the dressing room, didn't you? The the it was um, a room backstage behind the little bar upstairs, and it was because uh, that was Byron and Lindsay's flat. Uh, the people that ran the pub that you know were very kind to me, very kind to everybody, put up with a lot of probably difficult hassle from some some of the audience who were a bit too enthusiastic and a bit too young maybe but but you know they they went with it i explained to them what i wanted to do and and to be to to their credit to their in to and i'm very grateful eternally grateful they they went out of their comfort zone and they went with it and i think i think they enjoyed it i think they enjoyed it but every Cairo we had a dressing room a tiny little dressing room with all the food and and stuff in there and it was it was I remember this because it's in their book. It's in their book. Wow. Um, they described it as the weirdest dressing room they've ever been in because it was uh, Byron Lindsay's uh, daughter's um, bedroom when she was a baby, and and I explained to Byron Lindsay, please let's put it in aspic, leave it like that. So there are pictures of babies and baby sort of clothes and uh cuddly toys and in this dressing room which had a bed and a table and stuff and the reason why i did that and this is i'm not making the office it's absolutely true i knew no one would graffiti that dressing room and yeah. in the nine and a half years the fibroid was going nobody graffitied the dressing room Fantastic. because they thought it was a baby's bedroom the fact that she was nine and ten and twelve and down the corridor never occurred to them but it was something that worked uh we had saxon i don't remember that we had saxon play really wow uh, channel four um were doing oh, a I documentary do yeah. yes yeah. with uh on saxon and uh they because i'd done the documentary with bbc two in 2003 
the producer of that documentary had contacted Channel 4 uh, and said, look, I know a place, a venue that would be perfect for your show. And Steve will, if you explain to him, he'll go for it. And and I did. It was fantastic. The, the thing was no one was allowed to know it was Saxon. It was a secret gig. Uh, 80 stars playing a secret gig. I was allowed to put that on the poster. No one was allowed to know. Even I didn't know it was Saxon. I did kind of figure it out. <laughs> but but I put out rumours saying it was the Cure, it was the Human League, it was who else did I say? It was uh, it's two others. And so all these people turned up thinking it was the Cure and the Human League, and of course it was Saxon. And um, it was a bizarre night. It was these old guys with turkey necks on stage playing to an audience full of young kids who, apart from four people in the audience, nobody knew who they were. <laughs> nobody knew who... And, but they, the, the crowd went wild. It was a great night. It was... Wasn't the documentary, like, a, uh, them coming back and, and like, they yes. were playing the, the bivouac for a warm-up? Yes, like, and then they were... tour or something. Yes, it was... Yeah. It was... Um, oh, God, it's just, I hate... My memory is terrible. Um, I'd worked with him on the Elton John tour in 93 in Germany the promoter, uh, Britain's most f biggest promoters. Oh, that's so annoying when I forget names. Um, Harvey Goldsmith. Oh, okay. He was Elton John's promoter uh, in the 90s. He probably still involved. Um, and I was lucky to do part of the Elton John tour in Germany. Uh, and I met him, lovely bloke. He, he's a great man he's a fantastic promoter i you know I, I loved watching how he worked and i learned a lot from that too that experience and so, and so he was the um person who was doing the show with channel four he was saying to saxon the basic brief was um look you were massive in the early 80s you were top top 20 you know you you influenced metallica you're blah 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 they're still going where are you doing big tours of germany only come on let's let's re-establish you in britain and that was fascinating because the thing I learned was that Saxon would not leave their comfort zone. They were very unhappy about being out of their comfort zone. And Harvey picked that up quickly. And the program showed that brilliantly, not in a way to hurt Saxon, but I think in a way to show to the viewing public the dilemmas the Saxon or Biff and Saxon were going through and and if only they just stepped out of their comfort zone and and expanded their possibilities they could have done better yeah. than they were doing at the yeah. time so it was a good documentary I was very, very happy to be part of it that. and, and do you know what's funny <laughs> you know that Spinal Tap you know that Saxon is is the band that is um the major influence on Spinal Tap the whole yeah. show Biff got lost. Now, you've been to the bivouac. You know how, where the dressing room is, at the tiny corridor, and then you turn left, and then you're on the stage. He got lost. He wandered down the stairs, just like they did in Spinal Tap. I couldn't... I watched it. I could almost impossible, not. isn't it? <laughs> it's absolutely impossible, and he still did it. <laughs> Good old Biff. Amazing. Spinal um, Tap. <laughs> So, I mean, Sorry, I'm going off. I do this. You'll have to. You'll have to rein me in because I will just wander off in all different directions. No, because I mean, it's what nine and a half years <laughs> did you say of, of anecdotes, basically, isn't it? So yes, you know. Um, yes, I mean, so like my abiding memories are, are sort of um, my first forays into putting bands on, and I think a lot of people um, probably had their first 
gig there or, or you know, their first promotion night and, you know. I hope so. Yes, yeah, I hope so. That was the idea. That was the idea. Um, I, 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 I tell you, I, I'd like to mention because I'm very proud of uh, Will Bowerman. I was in uh, Who's From, uh, Collingham. And uh, I, people won't probably know who he is now, but he's massive in the music industry now. He's really doing well. He right. is the musical director for Dua Lipa. He was her drummer for the first world tour. He was in LaRue as the drummer for the first uh, and second world tour, I think she did. Um, he's doing really well. He's a session drummer. He's a musical director. He's deeply involved in Dua Lipa's success. Um, and he started off a guy who was brilliant behind the kit uh, from Collingham. I gave him his first gigs. I liked him. I liked his bands. He then formed I Was a Cub Scout. Oh, yeah. Classic, and yeah, they I, did I really well. Yeah, you see, yeah. you see, you know, was you know, he's track as well. Yes, because yeah, they were the I mean, two piece, weren't they? He was, they were and fantastic. he's they were fantastic. He has a very good musical ear, he's a lovely bloke, for professional. And I'm much older than everybody else, and I'd done a lot before I set up the bivouac. And the whole point of it was for me to share and experience that awakening. Uh, amongst uh, this sounds weird i hope not but that that i i've always been passionate about what i do in bands and i was a terrible musician um but i loved doing it and i became a sound engineer and i love doing that and i'm much better at that um and i it was a joy every week not always a joy but basically a joy to see people try things out sometimes they were appalling but yeah. they were trying and they enjoyed it. And yeah. I enjoyed the fact that they were enjoying it. Um, I didn't care. I genuinely didn't care what you did on stage. As long as you went on on time and came off on time. Yeah. Um, I wanted you to own that stage, a tiny little stage with four to five different monitor mixes. And everyone got a sound check and everyone got paid. And, and do you know what it was? That was sort of, Look, this is your half an hour, 20 minutes. I want to enjoy this too. Go for it. Let's yeah. have fun. Yeah. And and people, I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe that people like Will, like yourself, like um, Dave Parker, you know, uh, Tiger Warsaw, all these bands, local bands, Mad Crowd Disease, MCD, um, uh, all that crowd. I mean, that was an amazing crowd of people. Yeah. Based around that band and the subsequent bands that came came off that band their friends that whole all those different scenes they they enjoyed themselves do you know what this years later i found out this is uh, this is an old man speaking but years later i found out um that some of the parents of these very young because the the rule was you could be 14 you're allowed in you couldn't drink but you're allowed in um officially it was 16 but if you were sensible and you're 14 you're in um but you couldn't couldn't drink. I found out years later that parents would be really happy if they knew their son and daughter was going to the bivouac on a Friday night, because as they said to me years later, we knew they were safe. And I can't think of a better compliment, to be honest, to the yeah. format and structure and the goodwill and and generosity of Byron and Lindsay, Paul the barman, myself, you, 
everybody that played on stage, everybody that turned up and had a good time and had fun and, and basically learnt by doing what it was to be in a band or just a teenager or just being in the audience and just having fun. Not having, because in those days, <laughs> thank God, there were no mobile phones, there were no smartphones, there was yeah. no people in the audience waving it above their head and filming. Nobody, nobody. Maybe one or two proud parents were filming at the back with a camcorder. Yeah, of course, fine. Um, but that was it. Everybody was free. They were free at the bivouac to basically, and that sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? But they were free to basically, without being filmed, without being put down, without being ridiculed, without being taught, apart from Paul, who was sometimes a difficult <laughs> person to deal with, Paul the Barn. Um, he meant well, he just didn't understand he could be intimidating, um, which was a shame. Uh, but I did like Paul. It's part, uh, of, part of the furniture, though. Part of the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't he I mean, at one point you know i did i mean this is terrible i did think oh paul please you know just leave people alone so i did try and we paul and i got became i'd like to think good friends yeah i think it was and a it, sort of um there was a mutual respect there wasn't there i think so yeah. i think so uh, and <laughs> i but i mean do you think i'm wrong in saying that people had a good time i think they had a good time and oh, definitely. It was, yeah i mean um you, you, I want to go back to something you said earlier. So you said I, I'd let people do anything on stage, and sometimes I'd look back at, at you at the desk and you'd just <laughs> shrug. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know some of the things I put on, and like I don't know if you remember, we put a band on about three or four times from Leeds called Gore. Yes, and people still talk to me about that gig. So, well, the um, thing with Gore was because you know there was a Dutch band called Gore, and there was an yeah. Australian band before that called Gore, and I'd put the Dutch band Gore on in Leeds years earlier and your gore wasn't like them <laughs> no, not at all <laughs> yeah so these were like I don't know like kind of thrash metal stuff yes. wasn't it and yes I think the first time they came round they were playing five gigs in one evening so they came in plugged pod amps into your PA played and went again we paid yeah. them and they they left yeah um, the second time they just came and played a great set and then the last time they played they didn't come back after this they, for some reason, they brought a light, well, a, well, a fish, just a giant fish. This rings a bell. Um, and for some reason, they made the crowd line up in a rugby style line out, and the fish oh, got they... thrown. Yeah. The and like I just, a hooker would throw it. Yeah. And I, I turned around to you, and you were not phased at all. No. Like, <laughs> I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> is Steve going to chuck me out of it? And I think. Um, you even came in the next day and cleaned, you know, fish scales off the PA. And I do remember this. Um, yeah. I have a story, a fish story to go with that. Years earlier, and this is again, this is all true. Pavement. Do you remember Pavement? Yeah. Well, Pavement were friends with the wedding present who were Leeds based, and I was Leeds based, and Dave Gidge and I are one. Of the, go back to nineteen eighty. We've been friends. And we were neighbours in nineteen eighty when his band was called Lost Pandas, and then it became the wedding present. Anyway, going back to Pavement, Pavement had contacted Gedge years later and said, who do you trust <laughs> for a music publisher? Right. And I'm an independent music publisher. I always have been. I still am. Uh, which is another reason why I set up the bivouac, because if there was anybody any good with any good songs, I could offer them a publishing deal. So, you know, there's method to my madness. Um, nobody ever signed. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> 
But Pavement contacted me and said, Dave Gedge, when he present, said, you are a very honest, independent music publisher, and this is true. Would you be interested in signing up the publishing deal for our first album? And I had a golden rule, which I still hold to. Um, if I don't understand the songs or the music, I always decline. And the reason I decline is because I can't uh, promote as a music publisher your music if I don't understand it or like it, because I would be doing a disservice. I would be dishonest to the band. And Steve Malcolm, you know, we talked on the phone because in those days there was landline phones to America. And I came to see them play the Duchess of um, York in Leeds and uh, to cut a long story short, I kept turning them down and they kept inviting me to gigs because they thought it was hilariously funny. Um, the drummer of that band, the first drummer of Pavement, bought at Leeds Market a giant fish. This is years before you. Right. And basically did the same thing in Leeds at the gig that Pavement. So I was ready for it. I was used to it. Yeah, you know, it's like nothing. fish on stage. Yeah, fine. Fine. Fair enough. <laughs> um... so, so there's, there's the, I would. I think I was fair. I did lose my temper at times, I know, and I'm, I, I'm ashamed of it sometimes. There's only one band I've ever banned. Uh, there was one individual I banned in nine and a half years, but there was one band, and I put them on three times, and the third time, I was so angry. I think I know who you talked about. Yeah, yeah, I stopped the show. They're massive now, by the way. Obviously, me banning them didn't hurt their career. Uh, oh, maybe not. Uh, maybe I'm talking <laughs> to someone else. Uh, they were from Sheffield, I believe. Oh, God. Um... Oh, I'm gonna. This is rubbish. I can't remember what they're called. They were. They were. They're the singer. Obnoxious. They're all obnoxious. Um, they. Uh, he did a clothesline for children's t-shirts or something. It's really weird. Oh, uh, was it Bring Me the Horizon? Bring Me the Horizon. Three times I put them yeah. on because I thought the first time I thought, okay, they're a bit rude, but fine. You know, people like them. That's fine. Second time. This is getting a bit wearing. The third time, the singer tried. And you remember the PA stack on stage right so the left is your hit he tried to push it off onto the audience and that was it right. i'm sorry yeah. that's yeah. that's that's it yeah i stopped the pa pulled went on stage and just told him to get off the stage it's the only time i've ever done it i told him to get off stage and get out i paid him because i promised i paid them i stopped the show that was it um because they were hurt he was going to hurt the audience he was going to do something yeah. stupid yeah uh so you could do anything you like but you don't hurt the audience you I can think hurt they yourself. Were wild back in the day that band were definitely wild um i think they they had a bit of a reputation for a while but yeah but you know they they played glastonbury and yeah you know, things like that now it's crazy but um, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 i didn't it didn't i didn't hurt them did i really no, they didn't not, <laughs> <laughs> didn't slow them down <laughs> 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 So, um, yeah, that's the, another one. The only one I remember you stopping um, at one of Mark's festivals was a band called Shooting Victor Francis. So he was flinging, the guy was quite flamboyant on stage and he was f um, sort of um, twirling the microphone round by its lead. Oh, yes, and yes. I think, um, I think it smashed on the floor and he picked it up and it didn't work. And he right. sort of looked to you to like, go, can I have another one? And you went, no. Get off. No, no, I, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, you just literally smashed one of my microphones. Get off. And, you, and yeah. no one could believe it, but you, you went through with it and that was it. Yep. Yep. I'd forgotten so, about that. Sorry. Thank yeah. you about that. But, <laughs> I, there's, there's something, again, this is a, a technical thing here. Uh, in 1993, 
I'm really sounding old and boring. I toured with Iggy Pop. I was very grateful to tour with Iggy Pop. He's a lovely man. I already met him at, when I was at CBGB's because he came regularly to see some of the shows. He was a big fan of Prong, and I was the sound engineer and tour manager with Prong. I shared an apartment with uh, Mike Kirkland, the bass player of Prong, in New York, which is around the corner from CBGB. So, you know, I was set up. I was happy. Anyway, I got a chance to tour with Iggy Pop. The thing about Iggy, he breaks... 58s he hurls them in the air and he spins them around they break but the thing about iggy is he brings his own right he brings his own 58 <laughs> because he knows he's going to do it and he's respectful and he's professional with all promoters all crew his own band which is all session musicians normally he is the most wonderful person to work with he 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 i learned so much from him he treats everybody with respect and he gets it back all support bands get full use of his PA, full volume, whatever they want, and they always get a sound check. I don't know many headline bands that would do that when they're paying for it, because I've seen that happen. I've seen the way they're treated. That man is a gent. He's a star. He brings his own 58s, and he says I, to people, I'm going to break them, but I've got my own. This man turned up and broke mine. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> One stroke That's in true. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't, you kind of, you know, one of the things like MCD will tell you this, uh, all those bands that came out of, of that group of people, I kept explaining to them, when you go to another venue around the country, um, remember the bivouac, remember what we do, sound check, turn up on time, make sure you bring all your gear, make sure it works, just be professional, have fun, but make sure you're, you know, you don't let anyone down. And I remember Callum and Gaz and, uh, they came back and said their first tour of, of, of Britain. They said, you're right. Nobody was, nobody's like the bivouac. You know, we turned up on time. People were amazed. We had all our gear. People were amazed. They learnt. They learnt. And, and it benefited, they benefited from it when they went on tour with their own music somewhere else. I, I mean, Will uh, Bauman, you know, I was a Cub Scout, etc. But I mean, he said, I've heard him say that the bivouac days taught him the basics of yeah. what what was going to come and you know, he's he shines he's just gone on from strength to strength um again lovely bloke lovely bloke um what's his name um oh, this is i'm terrible i'm really good at this aren't i, I never remember his <laughs> names he's now a, a producer for radio is it radio one or radio two he was in um uh, one of those bands around that time black light was it oh, i can't remember but he he went into uh lincoln local radio station and he did shows with them he worked with them you know helped and learnt and he's now you know in radio one he 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 was involved with um oh this this really good story isn't it when you can't remember the name who's the very famous person that had a posse in radio one oh, i never listened to radio chris one evans or... yes chris evans yeah. he was in there and he then now he's a producer you know i think he became chris evans producer at one point before okay. chris left you know my point, my point I'm trying to make was that, like you, um, like lots of people, uh, they've carried on in bands playing, they write about bands, they're still involved in music, they're still involved in the entertainment industry, if you like, uh, both in a technical manner, like myself, uh, or in playing, or, 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 or just in so many different ways. It's wonderful. I mean, it's hard to sort of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of quantify how, how many people have gone through it's almost like a training ground i guess for some people that was the idea that yeah. was the idea yeah. that was that was a conscious thing of mine 
I know that sounds silly, but you know, I was twenty, what, twenty odd years older, uh, thirty years old in some cases. Um, this was my way of giving back to a little city that hadn't got much, and I know because I've been lucky, and I, I know I've been lucky um, to have fallen on my feet in so many different places in so many different ways, and I learned from people older. From the, the older me at the time, and I'm. This was my way of sharing. I mean, I, I was brought up in London in the in the seventies. Uh, I came back from Australia when I was ten on my tenth birthday, and I spent the whole of the seventies up till seventy seven, seventy eight in South London. I was there seventy six and seventy seven when punk started. I saw the damned and the adverts uh, and, and, and the early punk bands. I learned from them. I, you know, they were all 20, 24, uh, the damned's case, uh, 19, 20, the others. Uh, and they pretended to be younger. I was 16. I lied to get into the venues to see them. And, and, and I just watched. I listened and I watched and I absorbed like a sponge. And then, of course, the new romantics happened in, in, and I was kind of involved on the periphery of that. The, the, the start of Depeche Mode with Mute Records starting up, I was on the periphery of that. Um, I came up to Leeds. I started promoting. I was involved in the local Leeds bands, uh, Dust Devils. I did some tours with the Mekons. Um, I was learning how to do sound because I was a rubbish musician, and I thought, I've got to hang out with bands somehow, so uh, I'll, I'll learn to be a sound engineer because nobody wants to do that because I learned very quickly that everybody, like the referee in sport, everybody blames the sound man. So, okay, I'll do that because I don't care, uh, but I'll feel part of it, and that led on to... Uh, promoting the American bands, as I say, Big Black, Butthole Surfers, Periwoo, Pussy Galore, all these wonderful, wonderful bands, and and then Dinosaur Junior. And and at the end of the Dinosaur Junior dates, I remember this is true. Again, I've been so lucky because I'm so enthusiastic. They said to me, uh, "Come to America, uh, manage us. Uh, you're mad." Uh, <laughs> uh, Everybody treats you, forgive my language, but they said to me in Leeds, everybody treats you like shit. They think you're an idiot. We can see something. You have the ability to enthuse. If we have an English manager in America, we will be taken more seriously as a nowhere American band, which is their that's what they thought. And I went to tour with them in America and we got on and it was brilliant. And I learned so much from doing that. Um, Jay and I fell out, which is a, a real shame. Um, but there's good reasons for that. Lou and I didn't. And, and, and you know, I, I love Lou. He's fantastic. I, I helped him, encouraged him to form uh, his bedroom band of Centrado, which was just a tape thing, when they kicked him out. They kicked him out. It was just terrible. Uh, I was in Swans in Germany at the time. And uh, I was doing a sound check and Michael went to answer the phone. Michael Giraffe and so on. He came back and said, I, I can't do his voice because he has a deep voice. Yeah. Uh, I have some very I have some very bad news, Steve. Uh, yes, I, what is it? Um, uh, Lou's been kicked out of dinosaurs. Said, what? Um, and I quit. I quit. That was the, that was it. You see, you don't do that. I'm very honourable. You see, you don't do that to uh, your members of your close band. You just don't do that. So I quit. And then I, I, I rang him up. When I got back to New York with Swans, I rang him up and said, Look, I'm really sorry to hear what happened. I'm really, really, really sorry. Um, that bedroom thing, can you form a band? I know it's Centrodo. I know it's just tapes. I know you've got an album on Homestead, but just 
it hadn't come out then. I don't think it had come out then. It's it about to come out. Um, can you please form a band? Because I can give you a gig at CBGB's. Michael from Swan said he'd love you to support them, be their main support for Swan's two nights at CBGB's. And I remember Lou saying no, because he's quite a nervous man. I, I love the guy. And he said no. And I put the phone down and I waited three hours and I rang back and he'd rung his mum and his mum said, don't be so stupid, do it. <laughs> <laughs> so he did he put he got his 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 you know childhood friend and they they made a band and they played cbgb's to a packed cbgb's which if anybody's ever had been it's long and it's like the bivouac but longer yeah. <laughs> uh and on the ground floor uh and it's just as nuts as the bivouac and he played and and the reaction was fantastic homestead came down uh, the guys from Homestead Canada. It was it was just a joyous thing, and Murph turned up. Nobody expected Murph to turn up. The drummer he turned up, and there was a blazing row between the two because they hadn't seen each other since he'd been kicked out. Lou has a blazing row, and they were arguing on the street at CB outside CBGVs. I'm standing there thinking, I am the luckiest man on the planet. <laughs> I am witnessing two guys I respect in a band I respect. I've toured with you. I've learned so much. I love you guys. I'm very angry with Jay. Stop tearing each other apart. Look, Lou's done something great. And I and I returned a favour to, to Murph years later. I uh, There was a two 17-year-olds from Huddersfield called the Impossibles. Hmm. Uh, and they pestered me because it was around at the same time. And they said, manage us, manage us, manage us. And I said, I'm doing Dinosaur Junior. I, I don't know you. Please stop. Um, but they were very insistent. They were cheeky and they were wonderful and they were insistent. So I said, oh, okay. So we got them a deal with uh, Fontana, part of a major label. And this is true. God, it's all coming back. They, <laughs> I was with Dinosaur in America, touring America with Dinosaur, and they got a tiny advance, which I said – you know hold on to tiny advance uh it was a development deal so it was two singles and if that worked there'll be an album okay fine so go out and spend some of the money on two good acoustic guitars so they did that they went out and, and then this is hilarious this is i learned from this you're gonna love this they went to belfast with the rest of the uh advance as a holiday bumped into a local three-piece called therapy and persuaded because no they were cheeky girls they persuaded therapy to agree to be their backing band i'm in america i come back to leeds they tell me this and gave me a demo of this band called therapy it was basically the rough version of the whole of the first album and right. to my shame i never listened to it oh no i know it's one of those things isn't it you can't make it up. I've got still it. got it. I've still yeah. got it. <laughs> um, oh, God, my world all changed. Um, and so they weren't the backing band at the end, but they never happened. And they did. They I got them gigs with. Funny, they supported They supported Swans at the Powerhouse in London. So this is probably really boring for everybody. And it was hilarious because there were two acoustic guitars, two sweet girls. And Iggy Pop was go back to Iggy had been asked to review their single which he loved I, the reason why I'm saying all this apart from I'm reminiscing having a good time is <laughs> there is no such real thing as genres in music everybody mixes and and like at the bivouac everybody jumbles up Iggy Pop genuinely liked the acoustic <laughs> single of two 17 18 year olds from Huddersfield I mean, it's just crazy. And they supported, I mean, because of me, they supported Swans, I mean, when, who were signed to a major label at the time, the Burning World Tour. 
and uh which i did which was they band hated it but i had a great time uh, <laughs> um can you see what i'm saying i'm saying that everything i'd experienced before the bivouac was thrown at you guys yeah was definitely. on a plate yeah a whole point can you see what i'm trying to do so the whole point was to 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 to, to be a launch board for you guys to go out and have careers it it happened for some of you sadly without me <laughs> <laughs> and boy i tried uh but yeah. you know i understand i don't mind i don't mind i really don't mind because i've had a great time but I, I, i've always believed that venues in locations create scenes if you're clever and if you're lucky and if those scenes will inspire everybody in the neighborhood and those neighborhoods are then regenerated and inspiring each other in other ways in ways you can't imagine yeah, cbg I mean... in new york king tatswawa in uh glasgow uh the charlotte in leicester uh the bivouac in lincoln uh do you know, do you know what i'm saying it's just it's, it's just yeah, I mean, we we obviously, um, all, all of my bands kind of started off doing gigs at the Bivouac and it, we, we learned our, our sort of trade there, really, and we took Good. the attitude elsewhere, obviously. Um, and it then, worked, because you were big in Sheffield. You had a great, tell me if I'm wrong, but I've always known, or sensed I've known, that you had a great rapport with the bands from Sheffield. And, and you help lincoln have a link with sheffield because there was a there was a there was a um a relationship wasn't there between sheffield bands and 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 lincoln because of you yeah i mean i ended up moving there for university so that was kind of like the link i think but um before i even moved i think it, that meant i think weirdly if you put piece it all together um me putting bands on at the bivouac mm -hmm. led to me putting bands on from sheffield and getting to know a load of people from sheffield I moved to Sheffield. Um, I met people in Sheffield that I was in bands with for years there. We came back to play the Bivouac, and it, it all every, everything kind of comes full circle, really. So, I think it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm a passionate believer in in small scenes. Um, when I went to Chicago with Head of David, I did a Head of David two tours with Head of David in America, a band from Dudley. Um, nothing in this country but were underground and growing in popularity in america drum machine bass and a guitar player and a singer That's, uh, justin broderick is it uh he was in head of david before he formed godflesh right yes yeah this is all linked up i did sound for godflesh a couple couple of times they were wow. nice they were nice guys they are really nice guys um i i don't like working with people who aren't and uh, yeah. uh, uh and they were lovely guys and i was with head of david and, and head of david weren't used to touring you know they do three gigs in a year and that's a big tour for them you know uh and blast first had asked me to 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 look after them in america because so i'd been to america i knew america and we did this tour. and the point of the story was we turned up chicago in a ah, I can't remember what it's called, a lovely little venue again looks like the bivouac but it's downstairs uh, and steve albini came because he was on blast first and blast first told him and then um, this is a true story um i hope you don't mind um so there there's head of david playing this show uh we've been doing dates steve's in the audience uh being steve i'm on the mixing desk basically living the dream uh, and the singer has heat exhaustion 
Now, th this is what uh, I find this fascinating. The singer has heat exhaustion after the sound check, can't do the gig, just lies on stage, he won't move. So we move him for the support bands and then he sort of is up the side of the stage. Steve volunteers because he knows the songs because that's not his thing. But he says, I'll do this. I'll do the sound uh, and you sing, Steve. And I said, I can't sing. Paul Smith had flown in from London, who's head of Blast First, knew the songs better than the rest of us. And he did the vocals. Now, how many heads of record companies do you know would at no notice go on stage and do the gig <laughs> as the singer and know all the words? to the amazement of the band he signed. And and there was, I think, 190 people in the audience. It was brilliant. My point is, I'm trying to make is, the small record labels, the independent scene as was, needed the small venues. And we needed those record labels. It was a symbiotic, uh, mutually supporting relationship. Yeah. And the reason I would argue that the Bivouac worked first and foremost was i generated through my enthusiasm i'd like to think and through the fun of doing it a um, lot of local bands suddenly appeared over those nine and a half years playing their own stuff uh, but more importantly they played supporting signed bands from all over the world that came to lincoln yeah it was a two-way street Absolutely. everybody learnt. i learned i i saw every single show the bivouac did because i mixed them all apart from one when i was doing the drill hall when i was doing pretty sea power at the drill hall uh and yeah it was technical technically a success financially a character disaster uh but you know i'm glad i did it um then gaz Mackey did handled the desk at the bivouac for that night for uh the couple of bands that were playing he stood in for me so he did that and I was eternally grateful for him. Uh, again, like you, we got to know each other. We trusted each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I guess... Um, Sorry, have I rambled? No, no it's fine. <laughs> I think uh, it sort of shows how enthusiastic you were about that kind of time period. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people will sort of recognise gigs that they were at, like, while they listening so. to this. And, and, you know, they'll probably be interested in the goings on behind the scenes so well I, I always like to ask can i have your loudest sound first please yeah <laughs> see people, became... people still say that to each other so <laughs> you're famous steve <laughs> for that but it, but it was a technical reason i mean it became a catchphrase i know but it was a technical reason because i know that most people had at that time distortion pedals and they set them without realizing that when they press that button the level of the volume goes down because it's compressed so they think it's the loudest of course they turn off the pedal and the quieter sound is uncompressed. It is massively loud. My my favourite instance of that was you asking the singer from Narcosis to do his loudest sound and he screamed. Yes. And he said, can you do your quietest sound? And he literally held the microphone in front of his face. And you were like, oh, right. Very funny. But, but very funny. You know, I mean, we it was a stressful time at times to get everything to work. But it was always, even it was most stressful and I was seemingly in a bad mood, I was enjoying myself. There was a cure to that, though, Steve. Oh, there was there several. Was... Go on. <laughs> My cure, when, when I could see you were stressed, was, do you want a Guinness, Steve? And yes. 
absolutely. I see. Toxic Graffiti, Toxic Graffiti worked out that their their way of calming me with a bass player would play um, that Fleetwood Mac bass line that I love right, yeah. that's used in the Formula One, I think. Yeah, the chain, dude, and it's, they knew he knew, and I knew they knew. As soon as he started playing that, I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> like a dog it worked every time. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I mean nine and a half years is a long time. Yes. So um, do you have any highlights of like during that time? I mean, is this one one that really sticks in your head, or there's um, so many gigs? There's so many gigs. There's so so many gigs. Um, there are lots of things. There are lots of things. Uh, Adam, who uh, stood in for Callum after, sadly, Callum committed suicide in yeah. MCD. And Adam stood in and played the memorial show, uh, Callum's Parts, and sang. And he was utterly respectful to the rest of the band. And I will never forget that. My appreciation of Adam soared in the way he handled that and my appreciation of the band who I loved dearly as, as uh, uh, those people um, was fantastic. You know, just saw uh, I, Callum dying was a terrible, terrible shock. Yeah. Um, the killers. I like, I've got to say British Seapower had already played the bivouac and they played to not that many people, but you know, they stayed at my house and they said to me, we're going to come back when we're bigger and we'll headline and we'll do you proud. And I was like, thank you. You don't have to do that, but thank you. And they did come back and they brought the killers. And I didn't mix the killers. They had a sound engineer from London who'd done two shows with them, I think. Uh, and they did the sound check. And they A, they were the politest Americans I'd ever met. Uh, lovely people, full of enthusiasm, loved the venue, loved the venue before they'd even seen anybody move in. Um, I gave them my drum kit because it was better than uh, the one they'd hired from London. Um, basically, they played most of the first album, which I didn't know, you didn't know, none of us knew. No. Uh, I saw the sound check and I, I knew. I went up to the singer afterwards and said, you're going to be the next Duran Duran in this country. You're amazing. And the audience sold out British Sea Power Headlining, watched the killers without moving, gobsmacked didn't know what to make them i'd seen the sound check i was on the chair at the back by the mixing desk dancing away like mad like a good old <laughs> man that was a highlight um there's so many there's so many there's so many uh, seeing people um who you knew were nervous about yeah. going in front of uh, a crowd going in front of a crowd coming off still nervous but loving it and and seeing them change that's that's a highlight that's a real just seeing people who you know wouldn't say boo to a goose go for it yeah. and have fun and and seeing people write their own songs and seeing them look at each other when they played and bounce off each other and laugh and enjoy themselves and 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 try stuff out and their mates laughing and their and and people being oh harvey goldsmith See, harvey goldsmith came with the channel four thing and uh, I remember him saying to the researcher, this is a proper music venue. This is what music venues used to be like. This is amazing. And he thanked me in the TV program. He went on. He he wrote a review. He read out the local paper on air on the program and then thanked the bivouac for letting Saxon play in the program. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's satisfaction, isn't it? 
It is. It is. And, and, and just seeing people... I really wanted people to share some of my passion and enthusiasm seriously and 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 i i was lucky it sounds really hippie i hope it's not hippie it's not hippie it's not hippie it's not hippie i just i got back their enthusiasm and joy for what they were doing i did not care whether it was good songs or bad songs just as long as it was your own yeah does that make sense yeah and 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 i and i i my policy was always do you want to play here you go and we got frustrating for me because nine and a half years is a long time and it's very hard to keep booking bands. Yeah. Uh, you have to be, you, you can get touring bands, yes. Uh, you build up good relationships with the booking agents, the small independent labels. You put on certain bands, you always invite them back because they turned up on time. They enjoyed themselves. They were, they were, they were fun to work with. Even though there was, I think I lost count. There was over 120 local bands at one point. I just lost count. They were doing their own stuff. And when I started, I was lucky to find six in Lincoln. So that's yeah. a that's a that's a thing. That's an amazing achievement in itself. Uh, and the fact, I mean, remember Mike Turney uh, came to me recently and said, "We didn't care what you put on, Steve." He said to me recently, he said, "We turned up on Friday because it was the bivouac." And we knew we were going to get three or four bands and it was going to be with our mates and it was cheap. You know, I, I never charged a lot. I never charged a lot. But the door always went to me and the bands. You know, I had so much for me for, for doing all the work because I don't know if people realize, but I had to put up the PA and take the PA and put the lights in, although I left the lights on the bars, you know, the two bar, lighting bars, up, I left them up. But all the cables, all the desks, all the, everything, all the netting had to be put up before each show and taken down after each show so it could be used for other people. Yeah, because it was a function room. Essentially, it it was a function room. It was the bivouac, and it was advertised always as this, the bivouac at the Duke of Wellington. Yeah, um, it's on all those fluorescent posters isn't it as well yes Those it was very important you still see. And, and that was another thing i had uh, as an aesthetic from my point of view i never used photographs of bands i never used pictures it was always uh text so it was always bivouac at the duke of wellington dress uh time and it always said always from lincoln from new york from wherever the band was from because we had we had a i think we had a couple of japanese bands at one point we had bands from germany we had bands from, we had a band from slovenia who who, who who were lovely people i remember she came the singer came up to me and said uh she'd never had goat cheese before and she loved it she was just obsessed with goat cheese <laughs> after that she's just uh, and they were a good band you'd have liked them they were a, they were a good band they were good they were sort of uh, more soft and melodic but they were they were uh, Josh on from uh, Queens of the Stone Age. She told me had contacted them saying he really liked this band. And, yeah, they didn't sell very many. I didn't care. I liked them. Do you know what I mean? I remember what they were called. No, that's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet if um, if we look through the old uh, posters, they'll be on there. Somewhere. Oh, they'll be there. So, yeah, we'll try they'll and find the name. All right. They'll be there. And they were they were really nice. There were three guys and and the one I think from Slovenia. And of course, what's one of the things that Slovenia is famous for? Uh and I love this because I went there with the gun club. That's another story. Uh <laughs> um five days before the civil war started, it was as a Yugoslavia then. So uh, we thought we were the last band to play Yugoslavia. 
in Ljubljana this was, mm. but we weren't. Babes in Toyland beat oh, us. Nice. They were, they left three days after us. So uh, yeah, they hold that sadly. But um, Slovenia, this is fascinating. Slovenia has the highest percentage of adult literacy in any country in the world. It's something like ninety-eight percent, ninety-nine percent. No other world, no other country. Sorry, no other world. No other country has a higher level of adult literacy. Uh, they're really, they're really well read. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, um, what I associate with Slovenia is wine, weirdly, because I did, yes. I did some work for the company that was starting tours there, and I never knew before that. But apparently it's a beautiful country. I've never been, but it's one of those... I was, I was introduced to Slovenia through Mute Records years ago. Uh, this was in the mid-80s, early... No, mid to late 80s. I discovered the band Lieback. Oh, yeah. Yes, from yeah. Ljubljana. And uh, life is life, you know. Yeah, I remember uh, playing that quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I love them. I love Lieback because they were a contradiction, a mass, a mass of contradictions. So anybody who's got a mass of contradictions, as far as I'm concerned, you're in, you're in my gang. Um, I love you. And I, I tried to manage them. Mute Records had contacted various people said, we want someone to manage Lieback because they're in Ljubljana. And you have to understand there was no internet. There was... You know, no mobile phones. It was just phones, telephones. It was very expensive to call between Ljubljana and Britain. And I love that. I tried to become their manager. I failed. It was never happened. Uh, but I really wanted to. I mean, they were amazing. They had a driver who was uh, this particular tour. They came to Britain. They had a driver who was like 60, basically near my age, because uh, I'm 59 now. And uh, uh, he drove the the. the sort of splitter van or whatever it was the, the the minibus and they brought with them a huge log like half a tree as part of the band's gear and he would drive the band around and then in rhythm to the beat of the drummer he would chop up the log <laughs> on stage fantastic boy you could see why i wanted to manage them can't you i mean just they're nuts <laughs> <laughs> I can't think I've of any them. other band that have done anything like that before. Nope. No. Oh, uh, Neubauten. Do you remember and tried to... Oh, you won't know this. Um, collapsing New Biltons. Uh, Einstein uh, Neubauten. Um, yeah. um, Blitzer was in. Uh, and uh, uh, they came to Leeds uh, early 80s, early to mid 80s. I never went. I didn't. I couldn't go. For some reason, I couldn't go to the warehouse where they played in Leeds. And they... <laughs> I think it was the drummer had a pneumatic drill and tried to drill his way through the back brick wall of the venue on stage because they were called the Clapton New Buildings. Was, and of course, they turned the power off and everything. It was a chaos. You got to love that kind of thing. So, pavement with the fish, you, you, you got, you know, your band with the fish, fine. <laughs> no but problem. don't, but don't hurt anyone. Yeah. Don't hurt the audience. Yeah. I think that, that should be a rule universally really yeah uh, you just you just i i put on that uh 80s uh matchbox beeline disaster yeah i was going to mention them actually yeah That's they were a lot of people's memory of uh of work they were lovely they were fantastic they were like was it five five asian guys from london i think uh down south they were from down south and they they were heavily influenced by the cramps uh and i and, and of course because i'd been with the gun club for years a new kid, a new kid Congo, very, very well. And of course, there's the cramp stick. So we got talking about the cramps and and kid and and 
you remember they, they came on stage and the singer loved the netting and he tried to grab the netting and hurl himself over the audience, still on the netting. And I'm watching this thinking, I hadn't factored into that in my tension with the cooks and the netting. This is not going to work. And I was imagining it to just all come down the audience and I would be probably sued. Luckily, it held. Even though I had lots of hooks, I never imagined holding the netting up. Yeah. that anybody would try but he was so enthusiastic i got a phone call i got a phone call from their booking agent at the end just before they went on stage so after the support beds the, the booking agent rang me and said would you stop them ringing me and i said why what's wrong what's wrong i said each one of them has rung me one an hour to tell me how much they like your venue and how much they're enjoying themselves this is before they went on stage okay i'll, I'll, I'll try and damper their enthusiasm <laughs> they were great they were i mean i i looked at the, the today to get ready for this i looked at some of the because i keep records of everything i i keep records of how many people came uh how much i paid people i've got you know the dates everything uh and it's so all I'm on there that book somewhere you will be uh <laughs> and it's all there and it's all there and i was going through the list i'm looking at it now i'm looking at it now uh, and uh, uh, fond memories, some pain. It brought back a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of... Um, I relived some of the moments uh, where things weren't so comfortable, but but I kept doing it, so I must have enjoyed it. I, I, I do have very fond memories. Mm. Um, certain bands that never... Local bands, that a lot of local bands never achieved what I thought they could achieve for lots of reasons, uh, usually internal reasons, uh, or just that no matter how much I tried to make people believe in themselves, they there was always barriers for people, isn't there? There's always the dynamic within bands that can sometimes stop them from yeah. developing. And, and I'm an outsider, and I can see that. And, and so One Word Poem is a band that comes to mind. I thought, yeah. I love them. I could, they were so young. They were so young. And you could see, you know, um, oh, they could be so good. And, and Mad Crowd Disease, MCD, again, you could see, you know, they've got all the elements. There's just a couple missing, but give it time, give it time. And, of course, Callum didn't. Uh, uh, so, uh, Tiger Warsaw, who's still going. I love Tiger Warsaw, but I, Dean... And don't get me wrong, I love Dean, but you can see Dean always wanted it to be a band that's kept local, that works within his own parameters. There's nothing wrong in that. Um, but I th that's a band I thought could have been bigger. Is that yeah, a terrible I mean, thing to say? No, Is that awful? No. I think people tell them that all the time, but they've they've always been quite content to play Lincoln and yeah. just have a good time and record and play their own music so yeah um this is it, do you know that uh, things the story of madness uh it's, it's 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 interesting how the record company always struggled with madness because uh and i had experienced this when i managed in spiral carpets i had the same problem um uh madness never liked touring and they didn't really like going to europe they didn't really like leaving camden <laughs> and and you know, they've said it, this has been in documentaries, they've said it, they've said it themselves. And they, luckily for them, they didn't need to because they were, you know, a, a television band. They were, you know, 
brilliant for Top of the Pops and MTV and radio. And they're fantastic. But, but what could they have achieved if they had? And when I imagine Spiral Carpets briefly, um, for the fourth album, I came across a band, lovely people, hard to work with, argumentative amongst themselves, and they wouldn't like playing to audiences that weren't predominantly English speaking. It was a fascinating problem for me because I love touring. I love touring the world. I've toured Europe before I did the before. I toured Europe relentlessly with different bands. I toured America and I could never understand that. But it was a definite thing. They didn't feel comfortable playing their essentially language-based songs to a non-English speaking audience. Fascinating block, mental block, complete mental block. Uh, which we in the industry had to help them as much as we could. They'd hate me for saying this. That's a downer, wasn't it? <laughs> well, you know, you, you sort of, it's frustrating, isn't it, if you can see a band that you know you enjoy and you just want everyone to listen to them. Yeah. It, it can be, I guess. Well, um, they were they were they were interesting people who just like a lot of bands. It's. Uh, this is i so believe this is true most bands don't make it not because of the industry it's because of the something in the dynamic within that band yeah yeah that's my experience yeah i mean there's there's like countless um bands that i've seen over the years that you think if only someone had taken a punt on them or if they'd got out of the town that they're from or yep you know but yep. um, you know, it, it, some things are meant to be, aren't they? So, yep. I think that's the way I always see it. So, <laughs> hey, guess... this hasn't been a bad, is it? I've not been too rambling, have I? I've... No, I, I think say that. people. I think people appreciate, you know, just how much happened in that time, and, and we crammed of, a lot in, the, you know. We crammed, yeah, hundreds of bands, hundreds and hundreds of bands played, and, and uh, I can't name them all because you don't have time. <laughs> But so, they're all on the list. The, You're mean, on the list. Some you can people, come in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some people that I think we ought to probably mention that, that were so important around the time that I was doing. Um, yes, please do. There. So uh, Chris Wigley. Um, yep. So yes. Chris um, was in a band called uh, Paint the Stars and mm-hmm. Unhinged. Mm-hmm. And he's been in God knows how many bands since. Um, mm-hmm. Mark. Mark Thomas, yep, yes, um, who's gone still on playing. to yep, still playing, yeah, who sort of helps to run uh, a DIY venue in Sheffield mm-hmm. called the Look Hole. Didn't know that, but good. Um, so yeah, they're they're looking for a new home. Well, I think they've got a new home now, uh, but Mark was very instrumental in making that you know legal and um, above board and and sort of excellent. It was a squat essentially that turned into a a rented building, and they did it properly and they ran it properly like a collective had practice rooms and bike repair shops and all sorts, you know, the usual kind Excellent. of European style. All interconnected, all yep. mutually yep. helping each other. International bands playing there. Good. Yep. So Mark Mark holds down a job, I think, as an electrician or quite a high-level electrician, um, mm-hmm. but manages to run bands and a venue as well in his spare mm-hmm. time. Um, yeah, I guess just the, the bands that were sort of around when I started doing things, I, I always wonder what happened to them. So um, there was a band called The Welk Attachment. If you yes, I, really I always fell out with the singer. I always... <laughs> I, right. uh, he and I never really... I think we could appreciate each other now, 
But at the time, he rubbed me up the way, and I think I did the same to him. I think we ought to mention as well, um, Unhinged had the strangest dynamic in a band I think I've still ever seen in my life. Um, do you remember their singer? Give me some called, more clues. He was called Scoff, and he was a sort of skinny, chavy type. And he had <laughs> that a very that doesn't narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a he had an amazing death metal growl. Yeah, like a really low growl. Yes, but he sounded like Ali G when he spoke. Okay. Um, no, I really want to say I remember, but I'm no. a very old. And like, can The rest of the band were proper metalers, you know. And this guy okay. was just like he looked like he'd come off like. Um, racing, you know, courses round Sleaford or something. Yeah, yeah. With a little bum flush moustache. And then you get on stage and do this noise. Right. Um, <laughs> and I was always amazed. And it, I, I don't know what happened to him. He's probably still walking around Lincoln some, somewhere doing, you know, doing yeah. his best Sally G impression. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that that was like a, a real curiosity to me at the time. And I remember the band name. I yeah. remember the music vaguely, but I don't remember the singer. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think That's if you shocking, saw a picture, you'd rec- recognise him. I know him straight sure. away. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think I've got some pictures somewhere of that of that band, and I've got pictures. Um, do you remember a band called The Devils? That rings a bell. They wore suits on stage. Um, yes, and had a really strange um, dynamic. So they'd hand out business cards while they were playing as well. Oh, I don't remember that, but I love it. And they handed it out. It said like The Devils. Um, Available for bar mitzvahs, birthdays, and other, brilliant, you know, brilliant, brilliant. And I've got pictures of that, and um, yeah, just things kind of just stay in your head, don't they? So they uh, do. The there was a band I there was a band I put on from Leeds called Psychid, who yeah. um, I think I put them on three times. And the last time they came, they brought all these desk lamps, you know, literally desk lamps, and they put them under like it's a very good trick, but you put them underneath the drums and it's, they reflect off the symbols as they move. It's very clever, uh, very satisfying. Uh, but they were everywhere, and 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 I liked them. But of course, with all these desk lamps, they took forever to set up. So they were they were they were they were hard. Do you remember the band Hope of the States? Yes. The States? Yeah. They played, but not as the Hope of the States. They played as the all the same band, and they played as a. Uh, um, what do you call it? An instrumental um, film music type uh, show, oh. uh, and they called themselves something else. But it was the Hope of the States, and I was so excited because because I liked them. <laughs> <laughs> My... But they turned up with projectors and uh, and played film music they'd written for films that didn't exist. Yes. Fantastic, love that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, one that my friend, you'll know him, Stephen Trafford. Oh um, yes, yes, yes. Good photographer. It. Second Sight and... Yes, uh, and uh, Rotary 10. Rotary 10, yeah. Yes. Uh, he always talks about the Walkman gig. Yeah, the Walkman gig was good. That was yeah. a good. That was a New York band I was thinking of, the Walkman. Yes, yes, because okay, I knew one of them when I lived in New York. He we turned up... Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. We, we tur- they turned up and I'd booked them. I knew of New York and I recognised one of them. I went, I know you. You used to live around the corner with me. Oh, well, you got on really well. It was really good. What are you doing? And that was a good gig. I think, if I remember rightly... They got a bit frustrated with me, um, but it was a good show. It was a good show, and they were nice people. Mm. Is that your memory of them? I... Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, I think Rotary Ten played with them, so yes, I think it was 
that's what sticks in my head. Mike, it was a good you... match. It was a good match. That was, I know I like to mix up genres, but that was a blindingly obvious one to book. You know, that was, that was when I heard the Walkman, I thought, okay, I know I want to support, you know, uh, Sleaford Band, Rotary 10, nice guys, always do the business. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, another New York band I put on, which I'll always remember because I still, I still uh, don't have a finger. Um, do you remember when I put on Awesome Colour? I wasn't there, sadly, because I think I'd moved to Sheffield by that point. Uh, it was uh, uh, December uh, 2005, and they I think yeah. it was the second time, yeah. second time they played. And they were great. And um, uh, Dave Parker was there. He was he was downstairs talking to the band. And I was taking down the PA like I always did every, every after each show. And that's the night I slipped and knocked a speaker off the PA and it took away my little finger. <laughs> I got rushed to hospital um, and uh, lost my finger. So I'm now like one of the Simpsons. I have three fingers. Or... <laughs> <laughs> See, people, told, uh, people told me it had happened because I, I think because I moved to Sheffield in 2003. Yeah. I think by about 2005 or six, I only came back to play gigs or to see gigs now and again. So yes, when I when I came back, I think I, I asked you to show me and you were quite yeah. proud. So <laughs> oh, yeah, a little stump. I got a little stump. Yeah. <laughs> If you're going to lose something, I tell you, that's the that's the yeah. best thing to lose. I don't want to lose anything else, though. Yeah, yeah, you've you've been there. <laughs> I've been there. It was incinerated in Derby, I believe. That a ceremony, everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> people like the streets. I thought they might give me the mashed remains in a pickle thing, but they they don't. Apparently, no. they put that's it on a, a mantelpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect we the had, podcast to go this way, but, you know, there we are. We, we had, well, <laughs> it's me, isn't it? It's going to go in a way that nobody expects, including me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> you, you mentioned um, uh, Japanese bands earlier. So yes. I think uh, me and Chris put on one of those bands. So it was um, Unholy Grave from... Yes, Japan. I remember them. I remember them. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. I liked them. Um, and... I was I was particularly starstruck because they played with a band called Total Fucking Destruction. Yes. Now that they weren't very good, but um, their drummer Rich Hoke was in Brutal Truth, which was, you know, one of the grindcore originators uh-huh. in the in the eighties. So that was a Did, big thing for me to see that him okay. on stage in Lincoln was insane. Um, well, I, Dave Dave told me something like I didn't I put a band I can't remember they're called Classic Course, um, and one of them was the guitar player. Join. I'm going to ruin this story. They were from Brighton, and he then became one of the duo girl guitar player. No, he was the drummer. He was the drummer. In this. Oh, this is a rubbish story. I'm going to stop. But they were really good. I tried to book them years later, and <laughs> they became too big too quickly, and I failed. That sure. was a rubbish story. I'm sure they could fill us in at some point. <laughs> yes, uh, they were. He, he was a nice people. Nice people. Do you know what? Most of the bands I've put on have been really nice people, and most of the bands I've toured with have been really nice people. And I, 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 I actually know that's true because in this industry, it, it is quite small. We do all help each other. We do all interact. And you only survive if you're a nice person because the, the assholes, if I'm allowed to say that, yeah. uh, are quickly shunted out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You've got, you've got a sort of. I think your reputation follows you around in, in things like this. So, yes, it yeah. does. Yeah, yes, as, as was it was it um, um, Black Sabbath? What singer said? Um, 
be nice to people on the way up because you're going to meet them in the same venues as you go down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said it much better. He said it more, uh, more fluent and eloquent way than I just did, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been fun. It has, yeah. It's been really nice to sort of um, hear a bit about, you know, what you bought to the bivouac, but like a bit of Thank the you. memories around it as well. So, yeah, well, I hope people get a lot out of this as, as much as we have tonight. So, well, I hope so. And, and, and it's true to say I watched a lot of young people learn and experience and explore and have the wildest teenage years they felt they could have. And I, I'm very happy to say I, I contributed something to that. Uh, absolutely um that we were all part of a scene and a disparate scene too with lots of elements that cross fertilized in wonderful ways i'm very proud of that i think that's a good way to end uh end the podcast then i think just just a little uh soliloquy about lincoln's um varied music scene and i think it's it's still it still stands the test of time like people still talk about it um the spirit of that is still about with certain venues in Lincoln, and um, yeah, I think I a lot so. of people, a lot of people will um, will probably talk to you about this, Steve. So, brilliant. Be, pre- be prepared. <laughs> I'm happy because you know, you know, I do opera now, don't you? I've done ten years of opera, and um, that's another whole world in itself. Yeah, so I, th- I think we'll end it there. Thanks for thanks for being thank on you. it, Steve. And um, yeah, hope, thank you, uh, uh, thank you, for, thank you very much for showing me how to do this. This. Um, What's it called? Not Doom, is it? It's um. I've yeah, I've um, I've introduced you to technology, haven't I? Uh, Discord. Yes. Discord. Yeah. I thought it was Doom, but yes, Discord. Yes, and uh, uh, and uh, you've you've I've gone out and bought a USB mic, uh, uh, and I'm very excited. So thank you very much. You will have, <laughs> have to start your own podcast now. I'm 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 sort of being dragged into the 21st century. I think. There you go. Pr- proud to bring you here, Steve. Thank you very much. <laughs> Closing time